Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, rain, and some heavy thunderstorms in parts of the area. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation about moral leadership during a time of protest and a pandemic. And I suggest that moral leaders are women and men of integrity, courage, imagination, who, number two, serve the common good, not just their own communities, not just their own zip code. Our week-long series after the protests, What's Next Atlanta, continues in just a moment. But first, as always, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. There are 49,847 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,147. And there are 8,557 hospitalized. Now that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health at the time of this broadcast. In other news, for a seventh consecutive day on Thursday, demonstrations continue throughout the city. These ongoing protests are related to the in-custody death of George Floyd in Minnesota, as well as Breonna Taylor in Kentucky and Ahmaud Arbery's shooting death in Brunswick, Georgia. And yesterday was a little bit different because two Atlanta officials joined in. APD Police Chief Erica Shields and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who addressed a chanting crowd with a megaphone in hand at the intersection of Centennial Olympic Park Drive and Marietta Streets. There is something better on the other side of this. There's something better on the other side of this for us, and there's something better on the other side of this for our children's children. Now, Mayor Bottoms has issued an administrative order to create an advisory council to examine the city's use of force policies. Now, this council will, quote, develop strategies to prevent misconduct by law enforcement officials. The council members have 14 days beginning yesterday to issue recommendations to the mayor. The order also calls for a, quote, comprehensive report from the members within 45 days. And finally, today is the final day of early voting in Georgia for the presidential primary and local elections. Now, according to the Georgia Secretary of State's office, voters have cast more than one million ballots. Nearly 80 percent of those ballots were submitted by mail. Now, voters can hand deliver their absentee ballots at several designated drop box locations. And for a list of these locations and more information, just head to wabe.org slash election 2020. This is Closer Look. Yes, it's my city, and I'm deeply sad in what I'm looking at here today. I saw this city take off when I was 18 years old in the 70s when it began to really grow and prosper to where it is now. 
This is a major setback for Atlanta right here. We people who are darker than blue. And all this can be rebuilt, but it's tarnished. And let what others say come true. We're just good There is something different about this moment. I think a lot of our white brothers and sisters are starting to look in the mirror and ask themselves like, okay, maybe I am a part of the problem. Maybe my silence is a part of the problem. Atlanta has always been a strong city. We're different than other cities, you know? From here, exactly what you see today, we're already rebuilding our city. We're already taking care of each other, you know? Atlanta is a strong city, and I think from here we can just promote change. You're just the surface of our dark deep well. If your mind could really see, you'd know your color is same as me. For decades, longer than I've been alive, we've seen people unjustly killed, unjustly jailed or oppressed, and it's finally come to a head. So the conversations that I had with my son late last night while we were watching this, and he was like, Dad, why are they destroying my city? And I paused for a moment, and I said, son, people are angry, people are hurt, and they are acting out, but that's not the way to do it. And he was like, how do we do it? And I paused, and he was like, is it love? And my son is six-year-old. He, he's, he talked about love. Voices from folks I spoke to last Saturday. This is Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As our conversations continue, we'll talk about leadership. Eh, maybe that's pretty easy to define. But what about moral leadership? Well, that's our next conversation. From Emory University, Robert M. Franklin Jr. is the James T. and Berta R. Laney Professor in Moral Leadership within the Candler School of Theology. He's authored many books related to moral leadership, and his latest book is Moral Leadership, Integrity, Courage, Imagination. Dr. Franklin, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. You heard some voices of from folks I spoke to last Saturday. Um your reflection on not only what you heard, but what you've seen this, these past eight days here. Well, I am grieved, as many are, by the tragic death of Mr. Floyd, Mr. Arbery, uh, Ms. Taylor, and so many other innocent black bodies that have been, um, that have been murdered. And we are now at an awakening point. Many people refer to this as a new inflection point. And I think that there is a new awakening, a new awareness of injustice in our city, of things that were often lurking under the surface uh, that many did not see, and particularly those outside of communities of color. And now that is being exposed and people are asking, what are we going to do? Because this is not the city we love and know. So I think that uh, I'm, a person who calls, who is now calling for a renaissance, a rebirth of moral leadership. Mm -hmm. It's something that we've always had in Atlanta. I think people are proud of that tradition, but there are new streams of leadership in the city and, 
And we're seeing part of that debate and argument get worked out in the streets in terms of strategies and tactics for making Atlanta a better city and for achieving justice. Before we get into moral leadership, and you're calling for this renaissance on moral leadership, and you've been mentioning reawakening and and reawareness, but does it also include acknowledgement or some type of reconciliation dialogue to happen before we start talking about leaders and, and how we lead in the future? Or is that all packaged together? I think it is packaged together. I think that uh, as we talk about, for instance, at this moment in our current national, international journey, we are in a posture of grief. Uh, We're in the midst of memorials, for instance, for Mr. Floyd. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a trial underway for Mr. Arbery and investigations and other cases. So the grief, the lament, the anger, all of the things that are part of the sort of how we respond to these deaths that are significant and impact so many people. But I think as we move beyond that, we're going to be talking about healing and about uh, creating more just society, a more just city, just policies, policing policies, uh, better relationships between uh, groups in Atlanta. And so you invoke the notion of reconciliation reconcile is to restore right relationships between those who uh, are estranged. Hmm. But we're hearing many of the young people tell us, you know, we've never really been together. So this is really going to be a a matter of what the great uh, Morehouse theologian Howard Thurman called a search for common ground. And I think that's being thrust upon us now as we look at our shared humanity in response to these tragedies. So, Dr. Franklin, how do you, or would you rather, would you define moral leadership for our listeners who may not understand or or have questions about it? Yeah, yeah. So I use sort of a three-part definition, and this is uh, drawing on my own experience as the leader of an institution that was devoted to uh, producing leaders and moral leaders, of course as president of Morehouse College, Mm -hmm. and now for many years teaching and reflecting on the subject. And so I've written this slender volume titled Moral Leadership, and I highlight three virtues, integrity, Mm -hmm. courage, and imagination. And I suggest that moral leaders are women and men of integrity, courage, imagination, who, number two, serve the common good, not just their own communities, not just their own zip codes, And then third, they invite others to join them. So they're constantly expanding the movement. They're enlisting. And for me, uh, we had those leaders in an earlier time, particularly in Metro Atlanta's interfaith community. Mm -hmm. We've had the likes of Dr. Joseph Roberts, the former pastor of Ebenezer Baptist, of Reverend uh, Joanna Adams, who's a distinguished Presbyterian uh, pastor, now retired. Uh, We've had Rabbi Alvin Sugarman at the temple and uh, Imam Pliman El-Amin. And those four really began to model a kind of uh, cooperation and a coalition of respect, cooperation and reconciliation. So I think we have some wonderful Atlanta traditions to follow. So when you talk about those pillars 
of moral leadership. And then add in the characteristics, the typical characteristics of a leader. What's that framework of that individual? Or does it well, vary? Yeah, yeah, it, it could vary. But I mean, leaders essentially are people who are, are charged with having, making a positive impact in the world. And they do that through their influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's through their writing. Sometimes it's through their speaking. Sometimes it's merely living uh, compelling lives and then inviting people to join them. So I think it will uh, vary. We've had a number of uh, leadership approaches in the past from leaders who are more charismatic. Think of Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Think of some of the young leaders in the streets now who who draw people by virtue of their personality, the sense of that word charisma in Greek, it means gift, gifted one. And they, they seem to be these gifted people who, who, who are magnets for others. But secondly, there's this idea of bureaucratic leadership, often the people behind the scenes that make things happen. These were, during the civil rights movement, the lawyers at the NAACP and others, mm-hmm. you know, everyone knew who Thurgood Marshall was, but you know, few people knew who all the hundreds and hundreds of other lawyers, bureaucratic leaders there. These were the women at Alabama State uh, University mm-hmm. uh, printing those, mimeographing those uh, announcements about the bus boycott and so on. So there's lots of styles of leadership that we can bring together. And in your book, you actually cite four. And I want to focus a little bit on one because I think still this activist doesn't get enough credit and that is uh, Ella Baker. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, if you could bring this together when we talk about moral leadership and those pillars we talked about and how Ella Baker fits that template. Yes, Ella Baker, powerful African-American leader in North Carolina who attended Shaw University and emerged as a powerful community organizer. Mm-hmm. Think about the role of community organizers, because we've had one reach the White House in recent years, and the person of Barack Obama. Even President Obama acknowledged Ella Baker as, as, a, as, a, as I like your word, a pillar and something of a patron saint. And I hope people will learn, certainly through my book, but other places, learn more about Ella Baker, because she played significant roles in the NAACP, in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by Dr. King, and in founding the student movement organization, SNCC. So one woman Mm -hmm. bridging three different major social justice organizations. And my favorite thing is she was the woman, the only woman on the uh, executive board of SCLC created Mm -hmm. in 1957. That was a group of Southern male, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Baptist and Methodist clergy. She was the only woman there at the table, and she they, and, and Andy Young says she's the only person who could stand up to Dr. King, and Dr. King would listen and change <laughs> his mind in her presence. If you're just joining the conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Franklin, the James T. and Berta R. Laney Professor in Moral Leadership within the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. And our conversation is centered around moral leadership, and especially as it relates to what's taking place in our nation. You've talked about leadership. You've talked about those characteristics, the pillars. And someone listening may say, well, is this more important for those in elected officials, perhaps a mayor, 
obviously the president of the president of the United States. And should we expect that? Should we expect moral leadership from certain people in elected offices? I certainly think uh, we should. I have a wonderful quote from Robert Reich, who was a former labor secretary in the Clinton administration, who's been writing a great deal. And he observes that when Americans elect a president, because we don't have a monarch, in Britain they have a queen uh, as, as well as a prime minister, mm -hmm. but we sort of combine those symbolic roles, the symbol of embodying the best of American values the noblest of American values, and projecting our aspirations into the world, and well as the governing leader of the nation, the chief executive. We combine those in one person. Consequently, Americans have come to believe that the president of the United States should be a moral leader, should possess integrity, to be trustworthy, mm -hmm. act in accord with his or and her, hopefully soon her uh, deep, most deeply held values. Secondly, that they will be courageous. They'll step up and step out, as John Lewis says, and speak out on those difficult issues where the nation is struggling. And then third, of course, they should invite, be embracing, tolerant toward all people, including nonconformists, and welcome them into the community, into the family. What about when faced with a crisis, or maybe not even faced with what would be considered a crisis, uh, how important is it to acknowledge when this leader, he or she, or however they present themselves, has failed or erred? The importance of acknowledging that. Is I that a part of this too? Absolutely. Critically important. One of the fascinating things we see happening uh, even now are uh, revered honored military leaders, four-star generals, talking about the shortcomings of, uh, of the current president of the United States. Many of them served faithfully with President Trump. They were devoted. They tried to remain uh, silent. And yet they reached a point. There was a threshold of uh, violation, they felt. And so now they're weighing in to see General Mattis write this uh, incredible piece in the Atlantic magazine mm -hmm. um, and essentially say leaders, presidents are supposed to bring people together, find common ground, foster a sense of respect for each other. And at this time of great division, this president is dividing the nation. And so let the president be who he is, but he, he shouldn't be the president unless he can fulfill those expectations. How would you assess how Atlanta elected officials handled in their response to the protest that turned into, as Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called, chaos. Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields, decisions they've had to make about bringing in police, um, even now with this curfew and with using tear gas to force peaceful protesters to go home or wherever. But how would you assess that in terms of leadership? Yeah, I, I see genuine leadership on display in the city. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're, they're perfect in every act, in every uh, uh, effort to respond to unpredictable and unfolding dynamics in the street. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the commitment to trying to keep people safe, the commitment to allowing people to peacefully 
protest and exercise their First Amendment rights. And for me, the commitment to uh, exercising discipline on wrongdoers. All of those are important marks of leadership. And then the one that I would really add here, in addition to trying to provide order, safety, respecting civil and human rights, is listening to the people. And to see the mayor and the police chief in the streets, walking about, engaging uh, protesters who are, who are peacefully assembled, I think that uh, those they get high marks from me at this point. And let's keep in mind, Professor. Also, we're still in a pandemic. <laughs> you know, folks have forgotten about that, and there is still a, if you will, a fight because you and I both know that. Certain communities are disproportionately affected, impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're at this intersection of a pandemic and mm -hmm. protests. Yes. And leadership on both fronts is so important, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is extraordinary and, and in so many ways uh, a unique set of circumstances. And leaders are dropped onto the chessboard and have to puzzle it out on the spot. And that's why the inner characteristics and qualities of a leader emerge during times of crisis. We listen carefully mm -hmm. for what the leader says, their body language, their behavior, what direction are they tilting us toward? And uh, here again, I think we've had some, uh, some varying uh, symbols of leadership in certainly in the national uh, arena with respect to how we both manage COVID-19, flatten that curve, stay healthy and safe, and to also be, uh, to, to sort of prioritize the condition of the frontline workers, of the so-called essential uh, workers, many of whom are uh, low income, people of color working poor, that's, that's important to hear those, that nuanced message, as well as how do we allow people to protest peacefully and respectfully, which is a constitutional right, and at the same time, not disrespect the life, work, and property of other people. So these call for real nuance, sensitivity, discernment, and listening by, by good leaders. So when we talk about integrity, courage, imagination. Which one of those do you think is probably the, the most difficult for some folks? Well, uh, I, I start with integrity uh, because that represents the sense of trustworthiness of a person. Mm -hmm. That what you say uh, is reflected in what you do. That there's an integration, integrity. The, there's a, a, a kind of unity of, of thought and word and deed. And that's what evokes the trust that's necessary to lead. But then you can be a person of enormous integrity and sit on the sidelines during a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, the great uh, Renaissance poet Dante said, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a time of moral crisis seek to preserve their neutrality. That was what concerned Dr. King when he wrote the letter from Birmingham jail. All of the, um, you know, middle class and affluent white churches and clergy who were sitting on the sidelines while this civil rights movement was underway. But then uh, imagination is the other virtue. I, and there are many virtues I write about. I'm mm -hmm. sort of following Aristotle's lead. But I highlight these three 
for this moment in history. And imagination is the ability to, to dream up new solutions, to be creative. And I admire, for instance, the way the, uh, the mayor is trying to work with young people who like to drive these ATVs and their cars in the street and spinning around at night. Well, we can't tolerate that in a, in a safe and good city. But is there a way for, to channel and redirect and, and displace some of that energy mm -hmm. so they can do what they want to do in a safe way? I, I admire that instinct. We don't know how that'll turn out, but that's a leadership quality that people who are stubborn and rigid would say, oh, no, never, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're dealing with young people, you're going to have to figure out, this is a message to all of us adult and older leaders, how to be more adaptable, more flexible as we work with a new generation. Because the leaders that emerged out of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting and the tragedies there, I mean, and the leaders from Black Lives Matter, and I write about both of those groups as powerful examples of emerging younger moral leaders. Some of them are traditionally uh, faith leaders. That is, they have faith commitments and are part of synagogues, mosques, and churches. Some are not. Many are not, mm -hmm. according to Pew, uh, whose research tells us that more and more young people, 30, 40% are unchurched, are not are traditional believers, mm -hmm. the so-called nuns. They have no religious affiliation. So how are faith leaders going to connect to these, uh, let's call them non-faith or, or spiritual but not religious young people? So there's a gap there that I think we're going to have to work together on. And that's why I think we need a renaissance of moral leadership to learn those skills. They can be taught. As we wrap up, Dr. Franklin, your message to the young folks, as we call them, the older folks, which would be me and you. <laughs> yes. And what's the message to those two groups in terms of what's next for Atlanta or even what's next for our nation during this time of a pandemic and protests and how moral leadership fits into this? I would ask people to go back and take a look at Dr. King's last book, written in 1968, its title is, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm -hmm. Chaos or Community? What a compelling title, Rose. Where do we go from here? Chaos or Community? And study what Dr. King was pointing to in the last chapter in that book titled The World House. He talked about beloved community. And I, that's what I'd like to see high school students, college and university students, faith leaders, we should be convening. I hope our foundations and our corporate leaders today are listening and will think about how do we bring together commissions of, of, of leaders across the board, young and old, who can help dream of the next Atlanta. And I'd love to be a part of that as we talk about moral leadership at the core of it. From Emory University, Robert Franklin Jr. He's the James T. and Berta R. Laney Professor in Moral Leadership within the Candler School of Theology. Professor Franklin, as always, good to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for bringing all of this together as we wrap up our series here on Closer Look. Thank you for this show and thank you for who you are. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact.
Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As you look at the images on television and social media, you may have noticed that many of the people leading the demonstrations right here in Atlanta and across the world, well, they're considered young folks. Now, how you define young folks is probably different than maybe how somebody else defines young folks. Historically, many times, young people, the younger generation, well, they've been at the forefront of advocating for change. In fact, this week, former President Barack Obama recently held a town hall to discuss ways Americans can work together to reimagine policing in the wake of continued police violence. And during the conversation, he highlighted the collective strength and power of young people advocating for, in their words, a more just America. Dr. King was a young man when he got involved. Cesar Chavez was a young man. Malcolm X was a young man. The the leaders of the feminist movement were were young people. Leaders of union movements were, were young people. The leaders of the environmental movement in this country. As we continue our conversations for this series, After the Protest, What's Next Atlanta?, we bring in Kayla Smith to the discussion. Now, she's a rising senior at Spelman College, majoring in international studies with a concentration in diplomacy and international development. She's also a social justice fellow at Spelman, and she's also the founder of Spelman College's first podcast, The Blue Record. Kayla, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Let's begin with just your reflection on what's been taking place these about maybe the last eight days now for you through your lens What's your take on all of this? I've been trying to process things as they come. Mm-hmm. Every day there's something new. There's a new report. There's a new incident. There's a new video. And if it wasn't draining before, it's even more draining now that you're in the house. You can't go seek, I guess, peace and embracing from your friends or mm-hmm. even other family members. So trying to deal with that while coping with our new reality, it's not the easiest, but I am making do. As you watch the cell phone video of what happened with George Floyd, what went through your mind? Why? I know that's something everyone's asking, but I have to echo it. Just why? I saw the full video, all eight minutes and 46 seconds, and I just didn't understand why. I haven't understood why since Trayvon Martin. I haven't understood why since any of this. And all I could do is just watch in anguish. And I was just mortified. You saw the cell phone video footage of Amon Arbery as well, correct? Yes. You got the same questions? Same questions, but more of a sickening feel. He was jogging. I'm not a cardio lover, but I jog, I walk around as a way to get out my house during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I was doing something that seems a part of everyday functioning, just getting exercise and just to know that he was attacked because of his skin color. That's all you can go off. And we've seen this before, that type of neighborhood policing. So 
that was just so, it was excessive. It was, it was thick. And when you saw the news footage of two of your counterparts, the arrest, the pulling out of the car of Taniah Pilgrim and Messiah Young, two AUC fellow students, what went through your mind? All I could hear and just process were Taniah's screams. That was the first thing, actually, that struck me when I saw the video. And that night, um, all of my friends from the AUC, we were checking in on each other, calling each other, trying to see if anyone knew um, the whereabouts of Taniah Messiah personally. We were mobilizing, but we were also checking on each other's mental health in the process because we just couldn't believe it. When you say checking on each other's mental health, take me through that. What, what's that like? Are you all just having conversations? Are you asking people what they need? And I imagine anger, frustration, all those emotions. Oh, for sure. Most of us are in different locations. Some of my closest friends are in Tampa, Florida, as well as in the DMV, so Maryland, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And we've just been discussing what the climate's been like in our own hometowns and how we feel scared, how we feel nervous. And in terms of the mental health element, we've been checking on each other to be like, hey, I don't see you on social media. Do you need anything? How are you feeling? Are you processing? Some of my friends actually didn't know about the incident with Tanaya and Messiah because mm-hmm. they had deleted the apps. Mm-hmm. So some of us informed them and that kind of took some of them aback. You participated in some of the protests, correct? I did. Which ones in particular? Most recently on Sunday, the hashtag HBCUs for Black Lives. I participated because of Tanaya and Messiah, Mm -hmm. as well as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, the list of names we do know, the list of names we don't know. And because of who it was organized by, This protest in particular was organized by three AUC students, Mm -hmm. two um, women from Clark Atlanta University and one young man from Morehouse College. You know, I was speaking to someone we consider, I guess we would call a young leader the other day, and Devin Barrington Ward. And one of the things he said that really struck me, he said, you know, he said often people think young folks when they're protesting that they're not defined in what they are protesting about, that they're not clear and defined in what issues are important to them. He said, but we are. And so I asked you that question. Do you think because of your age group, there is this perception that maybe y'all are not defined in what issues are important to you and, or you're not strategizing or organized? Do you think that's a perception that people have for your generation? I think it's a perception because people are wedded to the idea of what protest looks like mm-hmm. from different generations and how those movements became and how they mobilized. And we get those perceptions from imagery. If you look at photos from the civil rights, from Stonewall, um, from all of these different critical movements in our history, you see certain images, you see certain things. So we don't always show that. At the protests I attended, Sure, there are some people who didn't have shirts on. There were some people who were, you know, just yelling. But at the end of the day, I think as young people, we are in conversation with those who came before us. Mm-hmm. Sure, we may not be able to articulate that theoretical framework, but we are in conversation because we are rooted in the same agency. Well, I think you just did a good job right there. The voice you hear is Kayla Smith. She is a rising senior 
at Spelman College, majoring in international studies with a concentration in diplomacy and international development. She's also a social justice fellow at Spelman and the founder of Spelman College's first podcast, The Blue Record. Your parents, your family, do they have any concerns for you? Oh, yes. Um, My mom is in the academy and she is an amazing person. She herself is a activist. However, she was concerned because we are in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And to go to a protest with so many people and not a lot of social distancing, because I'll be honest, people were tight. It was really tight. Even though the walk gave us space, it was still tight. And that was her main concern. Mm -hmm. Um, She's also a scientist. So she was kind of like, hey, if you go out there, you need to have a mask. You know, try not to hug as many people, try and bring sanitizer. So those were their concerns, but also just what they've been seeing on the news. Mm -hmm. um, The excessive force, anyone can be a target. And I think the last thing they want is to see that be me. What is your message to those older leaders? You just told me that we can learn from the civil rights movement. We can learn from some of those older leaders, but we also have a strategy of our own. But what is your message to them about what you need from them in this moment? Because this moment is really about your generation and how you all are mobilizing and strategizing. You all are leading this movement. To the Black elders, to the soldiers who were on the ground before this, believe us. We hear you. We see you. We were inspired by you. We want to pick up that mantle that you haven't stopped carrying. But we recognize that we are in a new generation. We are in a new time. We are in a digital space with access to um, resources and to each other. What we are doing isn't to disrespect or belittle the work that has been done, more so to add to it with a new voice a new perspective. It's not dangerous, but it is radical like your voices were and still are. So believe us. You're coming upon your senior year at Spelman College, uh, your social justice fellow. Take our listeners through what you hope to accomplish this last year and, and, you know, then afterwards, you know, what do you want to do? Sure. So as a social justice fellow, a part of my job at Spelman is to create initiatives that impact my community, bring forth healing, bring forth awareness. And that is my goal with the Blue Record podcast. It's actually because of that work that it's situated what I want to do for grad school. I want to pursue a graduate degree in international affairs, foreign service, and ultimately become a foreign service officer and then an ambassador for the United States. You have it all planned out, don't you? I do, but I also know that things come and go. I have an interest in journalism still, so... Come on over to this side, Kayla. We can (laughs) use you. (laughs) I'd be honored, for sure. As we reflect on this whole time, and and I think we started our conversation by asking you to reflect on this, but what has been your takeaway, that one takeaway from all this for you personally, as it relates to maybe something that has inspired you, an incident, a conversation... What has been personal for you throughout all of this? I think my main takeaway is that this country has has never prioritized human dignity. And this country that exudes these different principles of democracy and liberation and freedom, these concepts, 
are not being put to what they could be. So once this world, once this nation begins to prioritize human dignity and begins to love people, I think that's the issue. We're so used to violence in this nation. Our history is rooted in violence that we can't even begin the healing process to understand that that is why we are not giving human dignity and love and respect to all members, everyone. It's not just Black lives. Thinking about those in the Navajo Nation, what they're going through right now mm -hmm. in this pandemic, everyone, regardless of class, regardless of gender, all of that. And I think that's the best part about this movement of hashtag Black Lives Matter. It recognizes the intersectionality of oppression. And it's calling all of us to recognize that once we all choose to fight for human dignity, things will change, things will have to evolve. Because in our current state, human dignity is not the priority. And that's a concern. Kayla Smith, rising senior and a social justice fellow at Spelman College, majoring in international studies with a concentration in diplomacy and international development. Kayla, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Closer Look continues now. You're on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we wrap up this week's series, After the Protests, What's Next Atlanta? Here's local pastor Arthur Breland. Well, we need to teach a city to love. You know, we need to teach a city to love. You know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we certainly need to ask the faith community to speak up boldly uh, against white supremacy. It's a real thing. And what's happened in the in, in a number of years in this nation is that there has been a, a, a ignoring of the elephant in the room. And so what happens when you ignore the elephant in the room, the elephant just begins to destroy the room and people can't be heard and their voices, uh, they're not heard and they begin to riot and loot. And so what we say is we, we, we don't condone that. We do condone saying that racism is wrong. We reject it. We call for legislation uh, to happen. We call for the arrest of uh, police officers that are acting wrong. But, uh, but we, don't, we don't want to uh, put a stamp of approval as a faith community on that type of violence that we saw last night. I think we need local mentoring programs. We need uh, the faith community, local churches, lo local after-school programs to actually pull these young people in a room and actually have honest conversations and not judge them. Let them get off their chest what they need to get off and say what they need to say, ask the questions, and not give them just cute little answers, you know, and try to pat them on the back, but really dive into the the, the messiness that is systemic racism in this nation. You know, mommy, why is it that a 12-year-old boy gets shot uh, in the state of Ohio playing with a toy? You know, why is why is this man, why couldn't he take his knee off the man's neck, dad? You know, those questions like that, we need to be able to have those honest conversations. I think when we start there, relationally mentoring our young people, we can create that relationship equity uh, and then begin to educate them on how we go about changing the system.
I think we have great leadership, number one. Let me just say that Mayor Bottoms last night at her press conference uh, and mobilizing some uh, culture influencers uh, like uh, uh, T.I. And, and, and other people, you know, I think we need to continue to trumpet to say like, yes, we need to deal with this issue, but what's happening uh, in the streets and rioting and looting is not the answer. And so we need to continue to uh, be an example as the city of Atlanta to other major metropolis communities, uh, we need to continue to be an example for the rest of our nation. That's my message to my congregation, is that we need to learn to forgive, but also we need to use our positions of authority and influence to push peace and hope to a generation. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, you can find it online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And remember, you can always listen to Closer Look again weeknights now at 8 p.m., as well as on your favorite podcast player. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Stay safe, everybody.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.